Thanks for tuning into this week's message. For more resources and information about Cedar Valley, please visit cvchurch.org. Romans chapter 1 in your Bibles. If you want to turn there, Romans chapter 1. We're going to continue our series. This is our third week in the book of Romans. We'll be here for a while. Don't sweat it. We'll take a little break at Christmas. We've got a Christmas series planned out, and then we'll be back to it after the first of the year. But Romans chapter 1, and if you have that when you're ready, if you would stand to your feet with me. Just so you know this, if you're newer, newer, um, if you don't have a Bible, man, we'd love to have, for you to have one. You don't have to go buy one. You don't have to buy one. We bought them and we put them in the lobby. They're on high top tables. And so on your way out this morning, just grab one. That's yours. You can write in it. You can mark in it. We do have them in English and we do have them in Spanish. So make sure you get the right one. This is Romans chapter one. I'm just reading two verses. I'm starting at verse 16. And it says this, for I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It's the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. And the scriptures say it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We we acknowledge who you are, that you are the great God of creation. You are the almighty God. You're the God of unfailing love. And you demonstrated that in the giving of your son. You're you're the God who is always faithful, even when we head off in our own direction. And so this morning we bring you praise and we bring you worship. And it's been a joy for us just to be able to worship you and to declare our love for you. So we thank you for that opportunity. And now, Holy Spirit, we're asking you, would you please give us understanding of what you've said here in your word? I do believe right now that that was a word for us. And Holy Spirit, you've got to make that relevant for us. Help us to see. Reveal to us who you are, O oh God. Do it in a way that just continues to draw us to you. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You guys can have a seat. And so, uh, just, let me just pose a question. Have you ever had those situations in your life where you're scared? And I don't mean scared like there's a monster in the closet. I mean scared like you, you just get that nervous, anxious feeling in your stomach, like the kind where it's like I might throw up in my mouth. I'm not sure if I'm going to throw up in my mouth, but I could throw up in my mouth. It's that kind of feeling. Like you just kind of have that feeling. And it's a variety of different things. If you were little, if you can remember back this far, I remember first day of school, you're like, oh, I'm kind of scared. I kind of want to go to school. I don't know if I should. I, I, there's this anxious, nervous, kind of that, that, mm, that, that kind of a feeling. Again, not, not monster in the closet, just like I'm nervous, I'm anxious, I'm excited maybe a little bit, but I'm kind of scared still. Or maybe it's like this. Maybe it was a first date. Should I ask? Shouldn't I ask? Do I go? Don't I go? You're kind of nervous. You're kind of anxious. Do I go on this date? What's going to happen, right? There are other kinds of situations too, like maybe it's a first day at work. It's a new job, and you're like, I think it's going to be good. I don't know. Should I go? Should I not go? Do do I take this job? Have I not, you know, have I taken the wrong job? First day of work, you get that scared. It's kind of, I'm scared. I'm kind of nervous kind of feeling. And then some of you may remember this, first day of driving, first time of driving. Hey, if you're a student, if you're young, just notice, it's not, this is not the person that's scared, okay? This is the person that's scared. And the parent is like, do I let them drive? I know eventually they gotta drive. Should I let them drive? I'm kind of nervous. I definitely will throw up in my mouth. It's that kind of thing, right? Like we all have those situations where it's scared, but again, it's not, it's not monster scared. It's like, ah, mm, mm. All right, let me give you another one that I think most of us, if we're going to be honest, most of us experience. Like, 
little nervous, a little scared. How do I bring this up? Right? I definitely will throw open my mouth. I'm kind of ner- like, right? Like there's this, there's this nervous, anxious feeling about talking about our faith, about bringing our faith into a conversation, about sharing our faith. And as soon as you do that, if you're like me, and some of you, some of you could be, you better hope you're not, but if you're like me in any way, it's a flood of thoughts that fill your head. You're like, I don't know enough about the Bible. Maybe I shouldn't bring it. I'm not a Bible scholar. Or you think, I'm just not good at it. I'm not good at talking about my faith. Maybe you think, well, I have this past. And if I bring up faith, they're going to say, oh, yeah, but we know this about you. And you feel inadequate. You're not sure you can bring it up. Maybe you're afraid that people are going to laugh at you. You're going to be the, the religious weird one. You're going to be the wacko in the room, right? Maybe you think, they'll just think I'm weird. Okay, let me just tell you this. Some folks, they're already thinking that about you. Don't sweat it. It's not really going to change anything, right? Maybe they'll reject me. They won't want me around anymore. They won't accept me. Oh, here comes the weird one, right? And maybe it's, they might, want, they, they might not want to hear about it. Oh, yeah, that's right. They just, they just don't want to hear about it. And we tell ourselves all kinds of things. And so whenever that opportunity comes up, and we know it's one of those moments, we're like, wow, I could, I could speak my faith right into it. It just seems like it's this open door. And then we get this feeling that we're nervous and we're anxious. And so here's what I'm hoping happens today. I'm hoping that when we leave here today, I'm hoping that you're encouraged and that you're emboldened, not emboldened in an inappropriate, obnoxious kind of way. I'm saying emboldened to speak about your faith when the opportunity arises to speak appropriately about your faith. And we're going to see that from the Apostle Paul in our passage today. So look in your Bibles. Look at verse 16. Paul says this. I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. That's Paul. Paul's talking. Remember, we've talked about who the author is. Paul. Paul's writing to Christians, believers, followers of Jesus who are there in the church in Rome. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this good news. We've talked about good news. We're going to just so you know this, if I have my Bible out, I would I would underline, I would highlight, I would circle these two verses. I would put this big asterisks. This is the one that almost all theologians readily say. Verse 16, verse 17. These are the thesis of the book of Romans. If you said this letter to the church at Rome, this letter, then you say, what's the thesis? What's the big point? Boom, we're going to talk about it today. This is it. Uh, I remember being in college and, and, and I was, went to a Christian university and you take classes and, and they always want you to know as you, as you take uh, different, different books of the Bible, you always got to know this. Who's the author? Who's the audience? About what, what point in time are they writing? And what was the key verse? You got to know that. You have to know what's the key verse. I'm just telling you, this is it. 16 and 17, the letter to the Roman church. This is the thesis. I would circle it. I would underline it, but all kinds of stars around it. He's going to talk more clearly about what is this good news. And we're going to talk about this. But notice this. Paul, the apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. I think it's really important that we understand the full context of the meaning of this word ashamed. It's the Greek word episkunomai. Episkunomai, it's probably not a word that you say all the time, but it means this. It means disgraced like one who is singled out because they've misplaced their confidence or their support. They're being disgraced. Because you're an idiot, because you put your trust and your support and your confidence in the wrong place. Now, I'm going to apologize in advance because sports analogies just work for me. And you don't have to be a sporting fan. So you, ah, that's all he does. But, but I'll give you the, the example that I think of immediately. Let's say, for instance, you're a gopher fan. 
You love the Minnesota Gophers. You bleed purple and bread. You bleed maroon and gold. There it is. You bleed maroon and gold, right? And, and so you say, hey, the Govers are playing their arch rival. Now, it depends on who you think their arch rival is. Maybe it's down in Iowa City. Maybe it's over in Madison, Wisconsin, the Badgers. But regardless, you say, I'm going to the game. And so you throw on your maroon jersey and you roll into Camp Randall Stadium in Madison or you roll into Kinnick Stadium in Iowa City and everybody around there, everybody sitting around you has black and gold jerseys on or they have red jerseys on. Not you, no sir. You walk in with your red, your, your maroon jersey. You got the little cute little banner and you're waving it as you walk in the stadium and everybody's booing you and everybody's booing you like, no, 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 I'm a proud gopher fan. I'm a gopher fan. And the whole time they're jeering you and you're like, no, 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 I'm a, and then the gophers get shellacked. I know this never happened, but they just get crushed. They get crushed. And so now you got to get to your car and you walk out of the stadium like, how do I get out of here? How can I not be seen? How can I just, and you just walk out like this. Why? Because you start to think that you have misplaced your confidence or your support. That you didn't put your confidence and support in a really good team because they just got crushed and you feel embarrassed and disgraced and ashamed that, that's how, right. Here's what Paul is saying. The Apostle Paul is saying, I don't feel that way about the gospel. I'm not feeling embarrassed. I'm not feeling ashamed. Now, here's what's crazy. You and I can say this because we've talked about who Paul is. And Paul is this highly educated Jew. He had the rabbi of his day. His rabbi, Gamaliel, was the grandson of the greatest rabbi of the nation of Israel's history, Hillel. Like, that's who Paul was educated by. He, he, is, he has been not just a Jew, he has actually been a highly educated Jew, who, by the way, was also a Pharisee. Pharisees were known for this, man. We know how to keep the rules. We know the Jewish law. We know the Torah. We know our Old Testament, and we know how to keep. Paul was raising that, and sometimes it's easy for us to go, well, Paul's this powerful personality. Paul's a preacher. Paul's the greatest church planter the church has ever known. He was highly educated. But don't forget what happened to Paul after he came to Christ. I just tried to come up with somewhat of a list. He was imprisoned in Philippi. Thrown into prison? Why? Because he was proclaiming the good news of Christ. He was chased out of, literally chased out of town in Thessalonica two times, both in Berea and in Damascus. He had to be smuggled out of town. He was laughed at in Athens. Think about this. Athens is a, is a very uh, educational town. It's a university town. It's always fun to look at, and I, and I like to speculate, but Paul, if you look at a map and you look at his travels, Paul goes from Athens and then he goes to, to uh, Corinth. I personally, this is just a, it has no theological meaning, no, it's just my thought. But I think that in Athens, I don't think he had very successful ministry. And Paul says that when I was in Athens, I reasoned with the, with the, the educated, the scholars. I don't think that went well. And then he gets to Corinth, and then he says to the Corinthians, hey, I didn't try to convince you with wise words, I just tried to make Christ known. Right? He was actually laughed at in Athens. Like the highly educated are laughing at another highly educated guy. And then he gets to Corinth and they think he's a fool. He's declared a blasphemer and a lawbreaker in Jerusalem by the religious elite, elite of which he used to be. He was stoned at Lystra 
I mean, I don't know if you know this, but Paul and other Christians were thought to be, in their day, which is an interesting thought, they were considered atheists because they only believed that there was one God. And further, Paul and the Christians of their days were very misunderstood and were oftentimes called cannibals because of Jesus' teaching in John chapter 6 where he says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you cannot have eternal life. And so Paul was also called a cannibal. And then you look at all the ways that Paul was persecuted for, suffer, for preaching the good news. Paul says, I've been put in prison more often. I've been more times without number. I've faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. 40 lashes was said to have killed you. And so they would only give you 39 lashes. Paul goes on and he says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, they thought he was dead. They left him on the outskirts of town and thought he was dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. He was actually shipwrecked a fourth time after this writing. Once I spent a whole night and a day at sea, for I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. That's how he follows it up. Like Paul has not misplaced his confidence. He has not misplaced his support. He is steadfast in preaching the good news about Jesus. Now, here's the question that I have. How is that even possible? Like the guy who's been suffered, chased out of town, smuggled out of town, considered an atheist, considered a cannibal, considered a fool, considered an idiot. He's been laughed at. He's been mocked. How is it that that guy doesn't have that feeling that actually stops him? And I know people don't believe me when I say this because they go, oh, you're a pastor. It's probably easy. I'm the dude who throws up first. I'm the dude who always gets nervous. I'm like, is this some, do I say something now? Should, should I say something? It's just a natural feeling. My question is, when Paul is going through all this, how is it that he steps forward then and says, and, and is not ashamed? Like, how, how does that happen? Well, watch what Paul continues to write. He says this, because, I'm not ashamed because it's the power of God. Paul has a clear recognition of what this good news is. The good news is the actual power of God. There is power in the good news. This word power, and some of you know that it's the Greek word dunamis, it's where we get our word dynamite. He's saying that's what the good news is. It's dynamite, this stuff is powerful. Like he's not playing games. This is interesting to me, you know, initially, in the mid-1800s, we had nitroglycerin, uh, uh, an Italian physicist invented nitroglycerin, and they were using it to blow stuff up, and it was helping as they're building, and they need to move rock or whatever, whatever. But it's, then it's, it's really volatile because it's a liquid. And so people would just be transporting nitroglycerin, and it blows up, right? People are dying. Things are getting blown up. And so then in about 1867, you have a Swiss uh, physicist, his name is Alfred Nobel. It's where we get the Nobel Prize. I say we, like I was part of it. It's where they come up with, with the Nobel Prize. It's where they get the name for that, you know? And so he mixed this absorbent with, uh, with uh, nitroglycerin, and, and you can get it in solid form. And so they have sticks of dynamite, right? Like this stuff is crazy powerful. 1970, this is fun. You, you, I, think you can, I think you can get a YouTube, you can watch a YouTube video on this. 1970, there's a whale that washes up on the shore of Florence, Oregon. It's about halfway up the Oregon coast. And this whale is 45 feet long, and they think it weighs about eight tons, eight tons. And so, like, when you weigh eight tons, the water isn't just going to wash you back out. Like, that's not happening. And so this giant whale is, is just beached, and it's just laying there. And it's not like it's actually getting in the way. But they said that what happened was the stench became so powerful that it paralyzed the town of Florence, Oregon. 
Like it was so offensive, it was so thick. And they're like, what are we gonna do with this giant whale? Well, so the highway department says, yeah, dynamite. Yeah, that's what we'll do. We'll do dynamite. Now, nobody knows, like, you know, like, like, is this one of those trivial facts that you have tucked away? Like, how much dynamite does it take to blow up an eight-ton whale? Like, who knows this? And so the highway department is guessing, and they're estimating, and they want to guess on the low side. They want to just be conservative with it. So they think, yeah, conservative guess is probably 20 crates, 20 crates of dynamite, which is like a half a ton of dynamite. Right? So they strap it to this whale, they tuck it all around the whale, then everybody goes, and a crowd comes out to see this, right? Of course, right? Like, how many of you have ever seen a whale blow up? Okay, you'd all go, you'd all go. And so they detonate with a half a ton of dynamite, they detonate an eight ton whale. Well, they, they might have been a little generous in their estimate of how much dynamite, and it's like whale flesh and whale blood everywhere, and it's raining down. There was a car that was parked a quarter of a mile away. Now, this is 1970, so when we say it's as big as a Buick, literally, it's as big as a Buick. This car, it's this monster car. It was just completely wiped out with this huge chunk of flying whale, right? Right. It's the flesh and the blood of the whale. The good news of Jesus is the flesh and the, and, and the blood of Jesus, and it has that kind of power. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of it. I understand. I've not misplaced confidence. I've not misplaced support. This gospel thing, this good news of Jesus, oh, it's the power of God. Question, power of God to do what? Well, it's the power of God to save everyone who believes. It's saving everyone. That's the power of God. That's what the good news is. It's the power of God to save people. Now think about this. Everybody, everybody, if we're honest, has had that moment where you're like, man, I, I, wish, I wish that I was like, change. Like, I, I like this good news. I'd like, I'd like some form of good news. I'd, I'd like some form of this. I, I want to be changed, right? All marketing, all marketing is based on that. What advertisers have to do is they have to get you to believe that their product will change you, will, will, will move you, will, will transform you. We all want that, right? At some level, we all want more power. We want more control. We want more influence. We want to look better. We want to, right? All advertising is geared right at that. And for a lot of people, it's even an internal change. I want to change internally. I want to be different internally. I want to have less guilt. I want to feel more content, right? Have we not figured this out? No human ability has the power to do that. We don't have the ability, the ability to transform ourselves, to save ourselves, to change ourselves. We don't have that ability. We don't have that power. Human nature does not have that power. It's only the power of the good news. It's only the power of God. It's only the power of the gospel. It's the omnipotent God. That's the only one. That's the only thing that can change us. And Paul is saying, the reason that I'm not ashamed, that I, that I don't believe for a second, as much as people ridicule and mock me, and, and even the voices in my own head come on and say, don't bring that up because people are going to laugh at you and they're going to think you're weird. Paul's like, uh-uh, not me. And here's why. Because I know what this good news is. I know this good news has power. And I know it has the power to save people, save everyone who believes. Paul goes on and he says, here's what the good news does. And this is why the theologians say this is the thesis, because Paul defines it. The good news tells us, this is what it is. It tells us how God makes us right in his sight. See, this is what we're all looking for. We're all looking to be right. 
We're all looking to, to be right, whether that's physically, whether it's internally, whether it's emotionally, we're all looking to be right, feel less guilty, feel more content, have more power, have more influence, have control. We're all looking. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Only the good news can do that. And the good news tells us exactly how we can make, be made right in his sight. And it says it's all accomplished from start to finish by faith. Like that's the mind-numbing thing about this. Here's what we've learned over time. Nothing else has the power to make you right in God's sight. Guess what? The church can't do it. Ritual can't do it. Following the rules can't do it. No one else can do it for you. It's the good news. It's the good news that Christ died took all your sins on. And here's what's really crazy. When it says that we're made right in his sight, it means that the righteousness of God is now imputed on you. So when God looks at you, when God looks at me, he doesn't say, well, he's not quite there, but he's having a good day. He's doing all right. God doesn't say that. Because of Christ, because when we believe Christ, because of when we place our faith in Christ, here's the crazy thing. God looks at you now exactly the way he looks at Christ. That's how he sees you. He doesn't see you as like a good version of you. No, the, the righteousness of God is imputed and given to you. So now when God looks at you, he's like, that's my son. That, that's how he sees you, through the lens of his son. Men, women, that's how God sees you, right? And it's accomplished from start to finish by faith. It's not good works. The, one, the line that I get the most often when I talk to people is they'll say, because when you're, when you're a pastor, you try not to tell people you're a pastor because you don't get really honest conversation with people. So you just wait. And then it'll finally come up, right? It's always the most fun for me when I, when I golf because we have a, a group of guys and a bunch of us will golf together on Friday mornings. But every once in a while, if nobody can go, I just go by myself and I'll just walk on, right? And I try very hard not to tell people what I do. And we're golfing and we're golfing. It's like, you know, you just got to understand it's guys golfing and you'll hit a terrible shot and somebody's like, blank, 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 blank. And the, like, it's been like that for six or seven holes and all of a sudden they go, so Neil, what do you do? <laughs> I, uh, pastor church. Oh, oh, oh. You know what I mean? But, but you'll get really honest conversation, but then you tell my pastor and people kind of give me all kinds of things and they'll say, well, you know, I think I'm a really good person. I think I'm a good person. I'm like, you might be, I'm sure. You seem like a good person. But none of us are good enough. The beauty of this is when we trust Christ, when we place our faith in Christ, God looks at you not like a better version of you. He looks at you exactly like he looks at Jesus. Paul goes on and he says, as the scriptures say, it's through faith that a righteous person has life. Now, here's the, here's the crazy thing about Christianity, and, and, and I get this, plenty of critics of Christianity. The power of Christianity, and this is a weird thought, is in a crucified Jesus. Like, that's a weird thought. The world thinks that's foolish. Like, really? You, you worship a guy who came and, and couldn't, get him, couldn't even get himself out of a pickle. He was crucified. And Paul acknowledges it. Paul acknowledges when he writes to the Corinthian church, the message of the cross, the message of the crucified Christ who rose from the grave and now saves us through faith, that's foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it's the dunamis of God. It's the power of God, that the power of God is in a crucified Savior, 
right? Here's what's fun to me. If you go back to the book of Acts and you watch how things work, the book of Acts, if you're not a Bible person, right, we have the, the New Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish writings, the New Testament. And you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four gospels. And then the next book is, is, is the book of Acts. It's written by Luke. Uh, Luke was a physician and he wrote, and it's, it's really cool history of the church. And in Acts chapter one, you have Jesus, he's with the disciples. And he says, hey, he, Jesus has been res- resurrected from the dead and now he's walked around the earth for another 40 days. And he gathers the disciples and he's about to ascend into heaven for good until he returns someday. And he says, I want you all just to hang out here the promised Holy Spirit is going to come. I just want you to hang out here. And then you get to Acts chapter 2. And we have what we call Pentecost. And again, if you're not a church person, Pentecost is when we believe that the Holy Spirit came at that time. And so uh, they're all there in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes. It says they saw what looked like these tongues of fire on each person, each and every one who's a believer in Christ, right? And so because of that, they begin to speak out in other languages, other known languages, either were known languages. And the people of that day, they can hear them. And they're like, what's going on here? And some guy's like, oh, it's really crazy. They must all be drunk. And I, I always love because Peter's like, no, 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 it's too early for that. That'll be later, you know? <laughs> and, then, uh, and then he just starts to preach. Like Peter just begins to preach right? And it says this in Acts chapter 2, then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and he shouts to the crowd. He's shouting to them. He says, listen carefully, all of you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. And he is going to preach. I mean, and he's just telling the good news. That's all he's doing. He's just telling the good news about this Jesus who, who, who was crucified and for our sins, specifically as our sacrifice, and then rose from the dead. And he gets all done and they say, well, okay, what should we do? And then Peter says, you got to repent of your sins and you got to turn to God. You're headed this way, you got to turn from that way, and specifically, you got to turn to God. Well, what happened as a result? It says, those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. Like, that's an altar call, that is an invitation. 3,000 people. And we see this pattern over and over in the book, right? Uh, Peter and John in, in Acts chapter 3. It's at three o'clock in the afternoon, and that's normal prayer time. And so they're headed to the temple. And there's a guy sitting there by the gate. He sits there every day. People bring him there because he can't walk. He hasn't ever been able to walk. And so he's sitting there at the gate. And he's like, hey, do you guys have any spare cash? And Peter and John are like, ah, we don't really have any money, but here's what we have. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And they grab this guy by the hand. Like, think about this. Everybody knows this dude, and he can't walk, and everybody knows that about him. And he grabs him by the hand, and he pulls him up, and the guy just starts walking. He's dancing around. It's not like, ooh, I've never done this before. He just starts walking, right? And the crowd just starts going to buzz. They're just going to buzz. Now watch. Peter sees his opportunity, it tells us in the scripture, and as a result, he addresses the crowd. Peter sees the opportunity, and he speaks to the crowd, and he preaches, and he tells them, the good news about Jesus. That's all he does. He tells them about the good news about Jesus. And it says this, the report is, but many of the people who heard the message believed. Many, not everybody, not everybody believed, but many did. And so the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000, which means this, could have been as many as 20,000 in the church, because this is only men. Men, wives, children, could have been 20,000. And we see this, this pattern over and over and over in the New Testament, people just tell the story of Jesus. 
They just tell the story of Jesus and people place their faith in Christ. The, the record in the book of Acts says God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. And it's really easy for me, and it might be really easy for you when you see that to go, I know, but that's Peter. And I mean, that's Peter and that's John. And I mean, that's Paul who was later preaching. I mean, of course, I mean, these guys are dynamic in personality. But here's the really observation, interesting observation. Peter and John had to go before the high council. Because, you know, people are getting healed and people are coming to Jesus. We certainly can't have that. So they got to go before the high council. And here's what the high council noticed that was so interesting to me. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John because they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. And I just went, I'm two for two right now. Like, does somebody just feel ordinary? Like, do you feel like I have no special training in the scriptures? Have you ever felt like, man, I can't speak into this. I don't know the Bible well enough. I don't have any special training. I'm just an ordinary Joe. It's not my, that, I, I stay in my lane. I just stay in my lane. Like there's an opportunity out there and you get that feeling in your stomach and you're a little nervous and you're a little scared and should I and shouldn't I and the voices start coming into your head you're not the one. You're not educated enough. You're not smart enough. You don't know the Bible well enough. They're going to think you're weird. They're going to laugh at you. And Paul would say, not me. I'm not ashamed. Right? I think there are a couple things that we have to remember about the good news. Number one, sharing the good news is about the good news. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about your situation in life. It's not about your education level. It's not about how much power you have. It's not about how, 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 what kind of a job you have. It's not about what kind of car you drive or what kind of home you live in. Sharing the good news is about the good news. But further, I would also say this, that the power for sharing the good news is the good news. God said, it's the power of God at work saving men. It's the dunamis. It's the good news. That's the power. It's not about you. It's not about me. If you're watching online this morning, it's not about you. Right? We forget what's our role in this. Our role is simply to be a witness. Just before Jesus sent us into heaven there in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, he's got all the disciples, his apostles, and he, he's gathered them, and he tells them this. Interesting language. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my highly educated ones. You'll be my really articulate ones. No, no, no. He doesn't say any of that. He says, you're just going to be witnesses. You're just going to be witnesses. Now, if you go later in the book of Acts, it's about chapter 22. Paul is speaking, and Paul is telling his story and the difference that Christ has made in his life. And he's talking about how God called him and what God called him to do. And Paul says this, God was saying to him, you're going to be my witness, telling everyone what you have seen and what you've heard. See, that's all a witness does. We, we get this feeling in our stomach and we get all nervous and we think, well, I can never say anything about my faith. Don't, don't, don't try to give some theological discourse. What have you seen? What have you heard? Like, would you just think about this for a minute? Here's a question for you. Ready? Just ponder this. What difference has God made in your life? Got it yet? Like, I'm asking you to think in your head. What difference has God made in your life? What difference has Christ made in your life? Okay, that's all you got to tell. That's all you got to tell. 
We're witnesses. Witnesses tell what they've seen, what they've heard. What difference has God made in your life? That, that, that's, all, that, that, that's her job. I, I don't ever, anybody ever stop and go, but, but I just don't know enough theologically. Do you know that God has changed your life? And if your answer is yes, just tell that. That's your job. So let me, let me just give you the big so what. If you're new here, every Sunday morning we, we end with a big so what. Right? And the big so what is like, this is our bottom line. This is what I'm trying to say the whole morning. This is, this is what we're trying to get at. At the end of the day, the power of the good news is the good news. That's the power that transforms. That's the dunamis. Like, like that's, the, that's the power that changes and transforms lives. That's the power that gives us eternal life now and saves us unto eternal life someday when we pass from this life. That's, that's the power. It's the good news. I like, I like how Paul just says this, the Apostle Paul, and this is what I was talking about earlier. When I first came to you, he's talking to the Corinthian church, I didn't use lofty words. I didn't use impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. How could he do that and have the, the results yet? Because the power of the good news is the good news. That, that, that's what I want us to walk out of here with today. It's not about you. You guys go to school and you have an opportunity. You want to talk to your friends. You're like, but I don't, I don't know enough about my Bible. It's not about you. It's not about you right now. It's about the good news. What has God done in your life? So then we, we have a big so what. Now we like to have a big now what. We're like, so what do I do? Well, it's kind of the same thing, but I want you to just think about three things this morning. I want you to look up, I want you to step up, and I want you to speak up. Right, look up, number one. Are you, are you looking out there? Are you looking for opportunities? Again, I, I love what, what is said of Peter when he's in front of the crowd. Peter saw his opportunity. Here's my question. Are y'all looking? Am I looking? Are we looking for opportunities? Right? But then you got to step up. Then you got to step up. If there's an opportunity, step into it. I'll never forget one time I, I was working out of the gym, and at this gym we were going to, they were doing some reconstruction, and so you couldn't park in the parking lot there for a while. You had to park over this elementary school here in Bloomington, and then they had a little van that would come around. Remember this? And they'd shuttle you over there. You remember that? And, and they'd shuttle you over to the, to the gym. And I remember that we were all sitting in the van. I'm just being honest with you, man. We were all sitting in the van, and, and there's people I knew. I knew all these people. They all worked out at the gym at about the same time every day, and we're all talking, and, and uh, there was some music or something on the radio that was on the van. It was just annoying. And somebody, somebody goes, what kind of music do y'all listen to? I was like, uh-oh, I listen to Christian music. How am I going to say that? And I said that, like, I listen to Christian music, and I felt kind of timid. Right. Some, sometimes we got to speak up. Sometimes there's a time we got to speak up. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Why wouldn't I speak up? Right? we got to look up, look for your opportunity. Then you got to step up. Sometimes it's about doing something. There's an old saying in the church, and everybody, the name Francis of Assisi, it's one of those names. Like, you know how when you don't know who said something, you always just go, Ben Franklin, you know? In the church world, it's like Francis of Assisi, right? And he says, preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. So sometimes we step up. And then sometimes we got to be prepared to speak up. Now, here's the deal. I make this really easy for everybody. You all have a bulletin, and you got this invite. And the reason that it is 
as Hillary so adequately put, it is boogered on there. I don't care what you say, it's boogered on there. The reason we boogered these on there is so that you peel it off. And now you look up and you look for opportunities. You're like, oh snap, there's an opportunity. I'm gonna invite this person to church. Again, we say this all the time. 80% of the culture has said that at Christmas and Easter in particular, they would be willing to go to church if they got an opportunity. 80%, man, you're batting 800 right now. You're ready to go. Right, peel this off, have this ready. Your neighbor says something, you're like, oh, wow, hey, snap, you know, we're, we're having Christmas services. You gotta come with us. You're at work, right? You're at school. You're, you're dropping kids off at work. You're in your neighborhood and you're just hanging out and somebody says something, you're like, oh, wow, really? That's funny. We're, we're actually, we actually do Christmas at our church. We're having, we're having some Christmas services. Pull that off there, be prepared to hand it out. Right? Look up. Step up. Sometimes we got to speak up. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your goodness. God, we thank you for the good news. We thank you that because of the death of Christ, because of his atoning death, because of his sacrifice, because of his being our sacrifice, now by placing our faith or our trust in him, we can be seen as right with you. You can see us like you see your son Jesus. You look at us that way if we do that, if we confess our sins, if we place our trust in you. Thank you, Father, for that privilege. We thank you for the good news. We thank you for the good news. We thank you for the good news, Father. We thank you that you've been here with us and among us this morning. We're grateful for that. We love being in your house. God, we love being with a family of believers. We love singing. We love studying your words, so we thank you for the privileges.